everyone. You're listening to the Artist Chronicles podcast from the Institute for Arts Integration and STEAM. I'm your host, Antoinette Ellis, also known as Tony, and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 1. Each week, we will highlight an artist. It could be a visual artist, a dancer, an actor, or actress, or a singer. But we aren't going to tell you their name. Throughout the podcast, it's your job to listen and try and figure out who we're talking about. Let's get started. Our story begins on an early April morning in St. Louis, Missouri. It was 1928, and a little baby girl had just been born to a nurse named Vivian and a naval dietitian named Bailey. Vivian was beautiful, loved to dance, and the little girl thought the sun rose and set with her mama. When the sweet little girl and her older brother were just three and four years old, their parents ended their disastrous marriage and sent their young children alone on a train to a small town of Stamps, Arkansas, to live with their grandmother, Annie. Annie owned a general store, which was also the only black-owned business in town, something which was unheard of in the midst of the ugly and unfair Jim Crow era. Though they arrived in Arkansas at the start of the Great Depression, thanks to their grandmother's wise investments and prosperous general store, their little family was actually able to thrive during a time that saw many others struggling to survive. The little girl loved her time with her grandmother, and as an adult has said, My grandmother was the best. She didn't talk much. She spoke very softly when she did. Although... She had truly a huge voice when she sang in church. The windows would rattle. One day, the little girl's father arrived at their grandmother's house unannounced. The little girl was happy to see her daddy after so long, but was very sad when he told her that it was time to return to St. Louis to live with their mother. The little girl's mother welcomed the children back into her life, which she now shared with her boyfriend. Not long after the girl returned to St. Louis, she was hurt very badly by her mother's boyfriend. The frightened little girl didn't know who to turn to, eventually confiding in her older brother. He was so upset for his baby sister and told the family what had happened. The boyfriend was arrested and spent a night in jail, but a few days later, he was mysteriously found dead. The little girl was sure that her words had killed the man, and so she refused to talk. Unsure of what to do with her mute daughter, the little girl was sent back to the small town where her grandmother lived. Over the next five years, as she still continued to refuse to speak, she developed a remarkable memory, the ability to listen to and observe the world around her, and most notably, a love for poetry and books. She attended a school in town where her teacher, a family friend named Mrs. Flowers, told her that she couldn't truly love poetry unless she spoke it. And so she began to speak again, not only surviving but thriving in the little Arkansas town with her grandmother and brother. Mrs. Flowers introduced her to literary greats like William Shakespeare, Charles Dickens, and Edgar Allan Poe, and before long, The little girl memorized over 60 Shakespearean sonnets, countless poems by Poe, and over 75 poems by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, an African-American poet, novelist, and short story writer. 
When she was 13, she and her brother left the little town of Stamps, this time for good, to go live with their mother in Oakland, California. Not long after they arrived, she was walking with her mother and saw a streetcar go by. Falling in love with the uniform, she decided that was the job she wanted, but ran into a problem when the transportation office refused to give her an application to work because of the color of her skin. For two weeks, she staged a sit-in. Finally, the manager called her into the office and asked why she wanted to work there so badly. She replied, I like the uniforms and I like people. She got the job and became the first black streetcar conductor at the ripe age of 16. After she graduated high school, things began to move fast. She met and fell in love with an aspiring musician, began dance classes, and had a baby. She formed a dance partnership with famed dancer Alvin Ailey and performed at various black organizations in the Bay Area, but they never hit it big. In search of fame, the young woman, her husband, and her little boy moved to New York City so that she could study dance with another well-known dancer at the time. But they ended up moving back to the San Francisco area only a year later. Her marriage ended soon after, but she kept on doing what she loved, traveling and dancing. For two years, she toured Europe with the opera Porgy and Bess, taking the time to use her unusual memory to learn as much of the language in each country she visited as she could, and ended up becoming proficient in more than just one. When the tour was over, she continued to dance, becoming particularly interested in the Calypso craze that was sweeping across the country at the time. She even changed her name so that she matched the feel of her Calypso dancing. She recorded her first album, Miss Calypso, and starred in an off-Broadway review that eventually caught the attention of the producers in Hollywood, who then turned it into a film, Calypso Heat Wave, in which she performed her own creations. On the heels of that success, she moved back to New York City at the urging of a writer that she had befriended. She began to focus on her own writing career and joined the Harlem Writers Guild, where she met many established African-American writers and was published for the first time. During this time, she also began to develop an interest in politics, eventually meeting Martin Luther King Jr. The better part of the next decade saw her traveling from New York to Egypt, then to Ghana where she befriended Malcolm X. She returned to the U.S. with him to help him build his civil rights organization, but he was assassinated not long after they returned to the States. Losing her friend devastated this young woman, and left her unsure of what to do next. So, she decided to start writing again. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. reached out to this tenacious writer to help him organize a march. She jumped at the chance to work alongside such a changemaker, but later had to back out for personal reasons. Sadly, she never got the chance to work with him again. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on her birthday that year. The news of this loss sent this writer into a tailspin of depression. But, as with many people, 
the despair and sadness sparked this writer's creative genius. And she wrote, produced, and narrated a docuseries called Blacks, Blues, Black, followed shortly thereafter by the publication of her first autobiography, I Know Why the Cagebird Sings, by the end of the following year. There was no looking back after that. The 70s and 80s found this woman doing more than most people do in a lifetime. She worked as a composer, creating movie scores. She continued to write. Everything from TV scripts to short stories, articles to more autobiographies, even plays and poetry, including the famed Still I Rise. In 1993, she read her poem, On the Pulse of the Morning, at the inauguration of President Clinton, becoming the first African-American woman to have the honor to write and present a poem at a presidential inauguration. Have you guessed who this amazing woman might be? She was born Marguerite Johnson, but later changed her name to Maya Angelou. You might think that she would have slowed down in her later years, but she kept on going, producing six more autobiographies, making her directorial debut, lecturing, joining election campaigns for both Hillary Clinton in 2008 and Barack Obama in 2012, receiving over 30 honorary degrees and the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian honor. She passed away peacefully in her sleep in 2014 after a lifetime of teaching self-examination, equality, and friendship through her works, as well as the realization that we are more alike than different. What a legacy. This has been a production by the Institute for Arts Integration and STEAM. Teachers, for additional lessons and downloads that correspond to this podcast, please check out more information at artsintegration.com forward slash accelerator.